Stress, anxiety, and depression are skyrocketing among children and teens. And Cook Children's Healthcare System is on a mission to bring these topics into the light. I'm Winnie King. And I'm Dr. Kristen Perch. If you have kiddos in the room, now is the time to put on those headphones. Some of the topics we'll be discussing will not be suited for young ears. This is Raising Joy. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. This is Raising Joy, the podcast. And I'm Winnie King. Um, you know, I've been here before, and I am without my my right hand, my left hand, my left foot. My, I'm without, I'm without, I'm without my partner in crime. And, and she's still a little under the weather, and we're going to give her time to recoup. But I miss you, sweet pea. I miss you, Kristen. Can't wait for her to come back. I'm just really grateful that she was gracious enough not to spread her germs all over the place. So we're going to hope for her to come back, and I know she'll be back really soon. So we're we're really thankful that she's on the mend. But I do have a, 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 a guest today. So, you know, we want to dive right in. Today, we're talking about drugs, alcohol, and substance use disorder, particularly among high school and college students. Caroline Saba is our guest today. She is the Associate Director of the Counseling and Mental Health Center at Texas Christian University, TCU, where she oversees the substance use and recovery services of the office. Welcome to Raising Joy. Thank you for having me, and go Frogs. (laughs) There you go. Um, and I I have put emphasis on the word use because we are talking about substance use disorder. That's We're right. used to saying substance abuse. Help me understand why the change in terminology. Right. Yes. Thank you so much for asking this question because people are using both terms, you know, kind of simultaneously mm-hmm. these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because previously in the DSM or Diagnostic Statistical Manual, mm-hmm. basically the handbook of all different disorders, it used to be called substance abuse okay. and substance dependence. Um, these terms are outdated now. The DSM has been updated in its fifth edition, and it's currently defined as substance use disorder. Now it could be mild, moderate, or severe mm-hmm. based on the criteria okay. that someone might meet. There's a range. Yes. Yeah, okay. So clinically, you know, we want to follow what's in the DSM. But, you know, when, when you think of the word abuse, just in any context, what, what comes to mind? It's negative, that's for sure. Absolutely. It's, you know, overdoing. Right, right. Yeah. So if somebody's abusing something, they, they might be a bad person, making yeah. bad choices. Yeah. So it definitely has that negative connotation. Uh, NIDA or the National Institute of Drug Abuse is actually thinking of changing its name, the mm. government agency, mm. just because of that abuse and recognizing that negative connotation. Okay. So using the term substance use disorder, we can keep the focus on the person who might be suffering oh, with that. Okay. I have a colleague who who gave a funny anecdote with this. She said, we don't call eating disorders food abuse. <laughs> so no. why no. do we call it substance abuse? Okay. You know, it's okay. a disorder and, uh, you know, it's involuntary just as much as it can be miserable mm-hmm. for the person who's suffering. Yeah, yeah. And and it may hold them back from doing what they need to do, you know, for whatever reason. So it it's... Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so we've got something positive to say. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this work. 
Well, I am a licensed counselor. I'm a licensed professional counselor as well as a licensed chemical dependency counselor. Mm -hmm. So I I work with clients on a range of issues. My specialty is with substances. Mm -hmm. Uh, I work on a college campus, so it's it's an interesting and fun (laughs) job. You know, every day is different. And I've been at TCU for about 10 years, uh, coming up on 10 years, and I've never had the same conversation twice with a person I'm meeting with because everyone has their own relationship with alcohol or other substances. Okay. Now I did not envision myself in this, you know, career path whenever I was going to grad school for counseling. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't quite sure at first what, what area I wanted to be in, but through my practicum and internship experiences, I found myself working in treatment with adolescents Mm. with substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. And it, it just clicked. Uh, It just felt um, like a lot of potential with clients who were navigating the relationship with substances um, and navigating, you know, young adulthood. And mm. uh, so I, you know, I stuck with it. And like I said, I've, I've been in this current role uh, at TCU for almost a decade. Wow. Wow. And so how do you work with the students at TCU? Uh, they can find us a few different ways. So I am a licensed counselor, like I said, so they might come to the counseling center for, I don't know, say, they're feeling depressed. Okay. But after talking with our, our triage therapist for a little bit, it turns out, well, you're smoking cannabis every day. Okay. Whenever you smoke, you feel more depressed. Okay. And you know, maybe let's yeah. address the cannabis yeah, use. Yeah, yeah, So they might get referred to me. Okay. Um, or maybe a student gets in trouble mm-hmm. if they get uh, arrested mm-hmm. out in Fort mm-hmm. Worth or mm-hmm. somewhere, or if they get an alcohol or drug violation on campus, you know, they might come meet with me or my staff. Um, as well as we we support our students who are in recovery at TCU through mm. our collegiate recovery community. Okay. This is an open community for students who are wanting to change the relationship with substances. Huh. Maybe that means they're sober. Maybe it means they're thinking about getting sober. There's no like criteria that you have to have been to treatment or anything. But okay. uh, we get to support those students who are kind of going upstream and you know, trying not, to figure it out. Right. Yeah. yeah. They're they're figuring out who they are outside of alcohol or other drugs. Yeah. It seems like um, the substance sometimes, particularly at, at that adolescent age, kind of complicates the situation quite a bit. I know that's like, duh. <laughs> well, well, it it really is. It it sounds simple, but it's such a complex mm. you know issue that there's so many messages about substances, especially in college, you know, mm. everyone does it, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. animal house, mm-hmm. like neighbors, like movies mm-hmm. like that. And it just looks like a big party all the time. Yeah. And sometimes students come in with that mindset. They're like, that's what my college experience is going to be like. Yeah. Or yeah. sometimes the parents think that for yeah. their child. Yeah. And it, it, that just isn't true. That is, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. know that movies yeah. aren't realistic all yeah. the time. But also this is, you know, particularly when they're going to college, this may be the first time that they've ever really had freedom from mom and dad and, and the tyranny of, you know, parents and, and all of that. And so now it's like, I can do anything I want. And then they go down, you know, this slippery slope and they and didn't really intend for that to happen, but it does. Oh, yeah. And the phrase I like to use or like the, the language I like to use with my clients is desired versus undesired okay. outcomes. Okay. If, if you're choosing to use whatever substance, 
what are you hoping you get out of it? What mm-hmm. do you like about it? Mm-hmm. And then what do you not like as much? Mm-hmm. So what's desired, what's undesired? I don't say good or bad or right. any, you know, except negative connotation. Right. But no one ever has sat in front of me and said, like, I can't wait to get transported to the hospital for alcohol poisoning. Like, that is not a desired outcome. Yeah, no. By any means. No. Um, but it can happen, you know, when they're not aware of what they're putting in their body and how quickly and how it will affect them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, I think they need to pay attention to what are those desired and undesired things? What am I trying to avoid and how am I doing that? Mm-hmm. And you're totally right about getting out of the house for the first time, having this freedom you know, they're not thinking about like, how can I be the most careful? (laughs) They're just wanting to jump in feet first, which is normal, like developmentally appropriate for a young adult to do that. Um, But there is, you know, that, that piece of learning who I am developing Mm -hmm. into an adult with autonomy is Mm -hmm. that there's choices to be made. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think alcohol and drugs, it, it plays right in to that conversation as a freshman, sophomore, you know, young adult entering into college. Yeah. You know, I, I, as you're talking about that, and I'm, I'm thinking about the news that I've heard, uh, you know, on college campuses. Usually, it's it's surrounding a fraternity or sorority. Where usually it's a fraternity where they um, are having this party, and somebody is forcing somebody to to drink, and 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 now you now you understand that alcohol poisoning is real. You know, because there's always that bad outcome sometimes when you know when one of those students isn't doing well and has to be taken to the hospital. Right. And we constantly are encouraging students to call for help when needed, you know, because there can be fear in that, Mm -hmm. like, especially if they're under 21, if they've been drinking, if they're worried about somebody, they might also be worried, am I going to get in trouble if we get found out? Right. We, on our campus, we have a medical amnesty policy Mm. or good Samaritan policies is also known as. That calling for help, neither of you will get any punitive actions, even if you're under 21, even if you were using stuff you, know, you shouldn't mm-hmm. have been using. Mm-hmm. Um, we want, we never want a student to die. Right. That exactly. is our biggest, sure. you know, our goal is that you Keep do well safe. on our campus, yeah. you graduate, you yeah. know, you succeed in life, and you can't do that if if you're not alive. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's true. Um, you know, having safety as our first priority, we encourage students to call for help mm-hmm. and to recognize those signs of when did they just need to sleep it off versus when do they need medical attention? Right, right. So we've got like um, magnets and on the fridges and the residence halls and the dorms. We do it in every training, orientation, in mm-hmm. classrooms. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and encouraging students to to call for help, and they do. Yeah. So I'm really glad good. about that. That's really good. How prevalent is substance use? Uh, on college campuses and what the role does mental health play in all of that? So here's another kind of funny thing about (laughs) that language, use versus abuse, is Mm -hmm. that not everybody who uses, uses in a way that is undesired. Mm -hmm. You know, or not everyone that chooses to drink is getting drunk. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, abuse piece still isn't really relevant. Right. Um, Students that might use a substance to the point where they are experiencing undesired outcomes um, you know, that can that can happen pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. Now, again, with the mentality or the expectation going into college, everyone drinks. Everyone is going to experiment with stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that just simply hasn't been found by research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whenever we ask students, have you used this? How often do you use this? Mm-hmm. And 
in our campus surveys and national surveys, alcohol is the number one used substance on every college campus. Okay, okay. easy to get. No surprise. Mm -hmm. Although people sometimes forget that it's a drug also. Yeah, true. Um, That hovers around like 65 to 75%, depending on the college campus. Mm -hmm. For for us here, it's around the, the 70, 72 mark. A percent of students said, I have drank in the past month. Mm. So it's not a 100. Mm-hmm. I point mm-hmm. that out. Okay. <laughs> Just okay. to parents and, and to their students that it's not 100% saying, yes, I've drank. Okay. But about three-fourths or a little less. So that means one-fourth haven't drank at all mm-hmm. for whatever reason. They're not 21. They were not feeling well. They don't like the taste. They're in recovery, whatever yeah. the reason might be. Right. Um, so, you know, it is three-fourths or so choosing to drink, not all of those are doing it in a way where they're blacking out. Mm. So it's kind of looking at it more objectively. Okay. Um, and when it comes to other substances, you know, I think the perception and the reality often don't match. Really? Really. Okay. The, the perception that everybody's using this or everyone I know has tried it, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, who are you hanging out with? Because, like, <laughs> data shows us that only, like, 10% of people have used this. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. With cocaine being, I think, the the largest discrepancy between perception and reality. Mm-hmm. You know, students thinking, oh, a lot of people have tried coke. And whenever we survey, it's, like, less than 6%. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. really, who are you hanging out yeah, with? Yeah, really, really. Okay, got it. And and how do you feel that mental health, you know, wires into this? Um, uh, if if uh, if if a student is is struggling with depression or something, and are they looking to do things that are going to alleviate and try to fix it? Um, how does all of that work in 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 your work? I think any initiation of use of any substance, like using for the very first time, truly most often comes with, I just want to have fun. Mm. I just want to experiment. I want to see what it's like. Yeah. Continuing to use after that might be used or could be for that coping strategy. Mm. Wow, I really like the way that felt. I want to feel that way again. Again, How can I get my hands on this again? Um, with individuals with underlying depression or anxiety or mental health conditions, you know, substances work. They change the way you feel. Mm. Um, they work until they don't. <laughs> until but, they don't, exactly. But, you know, I think whenever parents or like our society are like, you know, this drugs are bad, don't do it. That's a mixed message because drugs can feel good. <laughs> Alcohol can feel good. Yeah. You know, it releases dopamine and things in the brain that are pleasurable Mm -hmm, and euphoric. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's a really hard um, decision for the individual, you know, child or student in my case to make when they're like, well, people are telling me this is bad, but like, it feels really good to me. I want to keep using it. Yeah. And so it's, it is fun and it does work until it it doesn't. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And it's a slippery slope for some, it happens really quickly you know, a few weeks or months, and they're like, wow, how did I get here? And then some, it's slower. It's a slower burn. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's really important that people are cognizant of that. Again, like, what do I like about this? What am I getting out of my use? Ooh, this is changing. Like, being curious about three drinks isn't doing it for me anymore. Now I'm having five or six. What's Mm -hmm. that about? Mm -hmm. Or I told myself I'd never try X substance. Now I'm trying it. Mm -hmm. What happened? What happened? Right. What do you want parents to know? Particularly, and I I know that College students are one thing, but when you're still in high school, 
that's still kind of, um, you know, it's tender. And and we yes. always talk about, um, you know, kids of that age don't have their frontal lobes completely developed. So, you know, decision making is a little difficult for them. Um, but what do you want parents to know about their kids and, and drug use? Yeah, I, I will preface it by saying, like, my clients are all over 18. Okay, <laughs> They're in okay, college. Okay. Um, and so I do, I feel for parents of teenagers in high school because that is a difficult place to be in, mm-hmm. to want to equip them with the knowledge and, you know, uh, decision-making strategies when it comes to substances, but also, you know, there's more risks at that age than being an yeah, adult. right. But I think the main thing I would want parents to know is that um, to have that conversation, first and foremost, mm-hmm. it can feel taboo, but just push through it. You know, it's it's really important. They're inundated by messages about mm-hmm. substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to hear what you think. There's a study in the um, National College Health Association survey where they asked college-age students, where do you get your health information? And friends and peers was like at the top of that list. Oh, I've you know, asked yeah. my friends about sex or yeah. drugs or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But where, where do you get or what source do you believe the most? Health professionals was number one. Really? And then parents. Oh, my. Yeah. Okay, I believe my parents. Yeah. I may not be listening, but I believe them. <laughs> <laughs> they might roll their eyes. Yeah. But, yeah, but, but they do li- hear they... and they do believe it. Yeah. Well, if if my mom said that, you know, this substance is dangerous, maybe it is. Yeah. Even if my friend is telling me it's not. Right. So, you know, parents, I think, underestimate their ability to, to influence. have influence. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's... We love puns in my office. So at parent <laughs> orientation, we say, your students are under the influence of you. <laughs> and yes, and thank yeah. you. Everybody laughs. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, we go on with our presentation. Yeah. But, but it is true. So they believe parents. Yeah. So if that boosts the confidence of a parent to have that conversation, wonderful. Yeah. When having that conversation about substances... Asking open-ended questions can go a long way. Right, right. So it isn't, you aren't going to drink, are you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you should say no well, to course. that. Yeah, and that's but, the end of the conversation. <laughs> right. Too. Oh, no. Okay, great. Okay. Done. Yeah. yeah. Um, it does take a little bit more time, but to ask the question instead, um, what do you think you might do when you go to a party? Mm. And someone offers you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, no telling where the conversation can go. Mm-hmm. Continuing to have those open conversations. And I mean, and this could be about anything. It could be right. about sex. It could right. be about relationships, right. anything else. Um, but with, with drugs and alcohol, especially, you know, breaking that taboo, being willing to lean in. That, what do you like about it? Mm. That, that does feel like a weird question at first, but, you know, they're using for a reason. Yeah. yeah. Or they're thinking about using for a reason. Right. And it may be difficult, too, for parents because they have to examine their own behavior. Right. Okay. And that's the hardest part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That can be a very difficult situation when you have, um, when you are using the substance, particularly alcohol, and, you know, you're home with a glass of wine and whatever that, whatever your relationship is with that substance may make that conversation a little harder. It is. Yeah, because you're modeling, really. Mm. I mean, modeling, you know, strategies to reduce risks Mm -hmm. of undesired Mm -hmm. outcomes. But I think a really great opportunity, too, to teach. Mm. Um, Not teach as in, like, providing it for them. Right. Because research shows that actually yields higher risk outcomes. The parents who are like, here, 
at least do it under my house, yeah, under me, my roof, let me, and let me watch it. I'll give it to you. Yeah. Yeah, no. That's parent permissiveness yeah, is how it's called in the research. And as parent permissiveness increases, so do the risks of mm, use. Mm. Um, and it's on the opposite end of the spectrum, the parents that say, it's illegal. Don't do it. Right, End of right. story. Mm-hmm. That also leads to high yeah. risk outcomes. So it's this middle ground. Yeah. They're like, whoa. Like, yeah. 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 That makes them want to do it more. Yeah. Yeah. But that middle kind of objective ground has the least risk outcomes. It's not no risk, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, the least where, um, you know, if that parent is having a glass of wine at home, saying, I'm having one standard glass. This is five ounces. Mm. This is what one one glass of wine looks like, mm-hmm. not filled mm-hmm. up all the way Wait to, to the, the brim right. yeah, of the red cup. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> okay, gotcha. And, and what role do you, do you think that social media and peer pressure really play into all of this? Oh, my goodness. I know. It's so hard. It just, it glamorizes it does. things. That's, that's really the, the main objective is... Social media is a little blip of, you know, a night or a, a drinking or using occasion mm-hmm. where it looks pretty fun. Mm-hmm. It's a party. Mm-hmm. You know, people are sexier. They're dancing. Mm-hmm. They're smiling. You know, and that's like 30 seconds. You don't see what happened later that night or the next morning right. or the next week yeah. or, you know, or what's going on in that person's head when they're using. Yeah. So it's it's difficult um, to gauge it just on, you know, that little flash of something really sexy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People don't make reels or TikToks about like having two standard drinks spaced out over three hours, (laughs) going home, making your home safely. Drinking a lot of water. (laughs) Yeah, it's just not like as appealing. It's not. (laughs) But it happens way more frequently than people think. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, I think about... um, you know, by the time this airs, it'll be over. But the Super Bowl and you have all these events where people gather and they just really want to, you know, let their hair down. And, and sure. And it's really a tough time, though. But you have to be careful. Right. And and I'm not bashing, you know, alcohol specifically that there are some desired outcomes. You know, people yeah. say, I like the way I feel after two or three drinks. Yeah. Um, and that is lower risk use. Two or three drinks spaced up out over a couple hours. Having 10 or 12, that's a different story. That's a lot. That's a lot. What concerns you the most about things that you hear in your office? I think right now, honestly, it's cannabis or or weed. Weed. I mean, I say cannabis because it includes all of the products and, Mm -hmm. you know, substances underneath that umbrella. But it's, it's the lack of perception of risk for cannabis use. What do you mean by that? So thinking... It's not risky. Oh, it's, gotcha. it's natural. It's normal. It's, it's legal. It's, yeah, it's uh, it's a plant. Right, right. Um, I'm like, well, so is poison ivy. Like, it, that's natural. Um, it's a plant. But but that's the thing is, as as the perception of risk decreases, use increases. If I think something's not harmful, what's stopping me from using it? Yeah. yeah. When I do think something is more risky or harmful, I might be more hesitant mm-hmm. to try it. Mm-hmm. Right now, the perceived risk of cannabis is very, very low because of the constantly changing landscape of legalization yeah. and yeah. decriminalizing it. And, um, and you know, again, well, everybody's using it, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. But looking at the actual substance and what is it doing to my body? What mm-hmm. do I like about it? What mm-hmm. do I not like about it? Mm-hmm. What's it doing for my anxiety? What's mm-hmm. it doing to exacerbate my depressive symptoms? 
you know, that doesn't get as much, um, you know, that conversation isn't had Mm -hmm. as frequently. Mm -hmm. So that concerns me as students come to our campus from all over the United States and internationally, but from states or countries where it has been legalized and maybe they've used at home and then they come to Texas and they don't know what they're using Mm -hmm. or the potency of Mm -hmm. it. It's, it's really the potency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, going back to parents when they're like, I smoked weed in college. No big deal. I'm like, well, you were smoking grass, literally. Like it had like 2% (laughs) THC. It was nothing. (laughs) Right. You could smoke a whole lot and not get very high. But today. Yeah. That's not the truth. These are different drugs. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. They are, de- and and you know, and some people will even tout it's for municipal purposes. You know, I'm, you know, it's a medicine. It helps. It does this. It, you know, and and so that kind of lowers the risk as well because it, it, you know, no one is saying that alcohol is a medicine. Sure, it is. It's not, but right. But with with cannabis, it's like, uh, yeah, I could I can use this because it's really going to help whatever this is I have. Yeah, we're in such an interesting time with <laughs> with legalization and, you know, there's talks, maybe is it going to, right now it's a Schedule One drug, will mm-hmm. that change? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's illegal federally, but it's legal in certain states. Mm-hmm. So we're in this, a lot of mixed messages, yeah. really. Yeah. And, and more so the lack of um, quality control, the lack of um, marketing mm. the, or like... Um, regulations for marketing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so a company could say this cures this it cures mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. and the fda only has so much uh you know power and, and time to go after the people who are making the most outrageous claims so yeah we're in a mm-hmm. very tricky spot yeah, when situation. it comes to that yeah. mm-hmm. seems like the needle is moving toward you know doing more about allowing it because now states are really because back in my day you know you just didn't even it was so underground but now it's like you have a doctor's note and you can go to a smoke shop and get what you need or, you know, but it's different. It is different. But one of the bigger things that, you know, at the hospital that we hear about and talk about is fentanyl. How is that? What's that like when you're sitting in your chair and people are walking through? How do you feel about? Yeah, that's very concerning yeah. as well, because that isn't just, oh, I didn't like the high I had or something. Okay. I mean, that having too much fentanyl in your system, you can die. Yeah, one-time use. Yeah, I mean, in, in very low quantities, two milligrams or more is, is lethal mm-hmm. for a human being. So it isn't just people with opioid use disorder who are at risk of overdosing from fentanyl or from opioids. Mm-hmm. It's someone who might be taking something for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, a student who is getting handed an Adderall or what they think is Adderall and being told, this will help you study but it's really laced or a student athlete who has an injury and they were taking prescribed opioids for pain medication. And then their prescription ran out. They're like, well, I have taken this before. I know how it acts, you know, my body, I'll buy it from this dealer, but it isn't the same. Mm -hmm. So it is very concerning. Um, The DEA back in 2022 said that six out of 10 uh, pills that they confiscated contain lethal doses of fentanyl. Oof. So that, that's very alarming. I mean, we are in a, in a crisis yeah. um, regarding that. And that's why it's important that, again, students and kids say they know what they're putting in their body. Mm-hmm. If it's not prescribed to you, if it's okay. not the doses that's prescribed to you, yeah. do not take it. 
But even sometimes it is so difficult because the dealers have gotten so smart and they're looking, they're they're making them look like candy or you know different things. You have no idea. It is baffling. Yes, I mean, I in our um, opioid overdose prevention training that we do on campus, it's mm-hmm. open to any student, faculty, and staff. We show pictures side by side of a, a legitimate mm-hmm. pill and then a counterfeit one, and we ask which, which one, one is, is which? which. Yeah, and they're like, "Oh, well, this this number looks a little off, or this, you know, the corners are rounded." I'm like, "You can't tell. You can't even tell side by side on a zoomed in picture on a screen. How are you going to tell if somebody takes one out of their pocket in mm-hmm. a dark, loud mm-hmm. party mm-hmm. and hands it to you? Mm-hmm. You won't. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, and there are things like fentanyl test strips." out there that, you know, if a person who was using really wanted to be sure that their pill or whatever they're about to take didn't contain fentanyl, but it's tricky. It can give a false sense of uh, security Yeah. if they test one pill in a batch and it didn't, but what if the next one did? Right. Gosh, this is just alarming when you're starting to talk about stuff like that and it's really difficult. Yeah. Girl, I'm glad I'm not 19. (laughs) You know, anymore. Me too. <laughs> it's really tough. It's a tough time. It is. And all the more reason why it's important to have these conversations mm, with mm. with your child your children, mm. you know, your teenagers, your young adults, even your older, you know, adult children. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because it's constantly changing. Yeah. And anytime I give trainings and stuff, I have to update them, especially when it comes to weed, because there's always something new, um, always something new to be aware of and you know, just things that I hate to say this, but I have job security because (laughs) this is always, you know, going to be an issue, especially on a college campus. It always will. Always will. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Caroline. Um, We have one more question and we always ask the question, what are you grateful for? I I love this question. Thank you. And it's cliche, but I, I would say my family. Okay. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, okay. a seven-month-old baby boy, and so they just bring so much joy to our lives, Aww. but specifically my husband. Okay. Because our, our son, our seven-month-old, was born with this ultra-rare genetic disorder, Aww. so we've both just been navigating all Dealing these doctor's that. appointments yeah. and therapies and, you know, just the unknown prognosis and my husband, you know, I couldn't have picked a better guy to marry. Aww. <laughs> Super That's grateful. That's so nice. That's really nice. Well, I am grateful for my co-host. I am really missing her right now. And I just want her to know this is not the same without you. No, so, sending her all the love. Yes, absolutely. Sending her all the love. And so I am grateful for Kristen. I can't wait for her to come back. So. But thank you guys for listening to this episode of Raising Joy. Until next time, just breathe, open up, you matter.